Well, we just sing the song, Hungry. Hungry, I come to you, for I know you satisfy. You know, it's easy to sing those words, but do we really mean it? Do we really mean what we sing? Hungry, I come to you, for I know you satisfy. Do we run to God to satisfy our souls? Or do we look to other things? I mean, think about your daily life. What do you spend your time contemplating? What do you spend your time focusing on? What is truly your heart's desire? What is it that you hunger after? You know, the Westminster Catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But is your life spent enjoying God? Really? This may come as a a two-by-four to the side of the face, and if so, you know, I'm kind of sorry. You're probably sitting here, you know, I'm singing these songs, I'm enjoying myself, I'm thinking about what it means to hunger after God, and here you are, you're coming up here, and and you're just running me through the ringer right off the bat. And, uh, guys, I'm sorry. It's not that I have a problem. Well, it is that I have a problem. I should say, I do have a problem. And the problem is, I desperately want this to be true for us. I desperately want each of us to find our soul satisfaction in God. I desperately want each of us to hunger and to thirst after Him and to find satisfaction, ultimate, soul-satisfying, God-enjoying satisfaction in nothing else. And so that's my problem. I don't want us to honor God with our lips while our hearts are far from Him. Friends, today we're going to be looking at Micah chapter 3. We're continuing in our study of Micah. And we're going to see that this is exactly what the people of Israel were doing. Outwardly, they continued to worship God. But inwardly, they were finding their satisfaction in other things, in lesser things. They were professing to find their hunger their soul satisfaction in God. But the reality is, their life was spent chasing after other things. So, today, let it be said of us, truly said from us, hungry I come to you, for I know you satisfy. Let us not just worship Him outwardly, but inwardly. Let's go ahead and take a look at Micah chapter 3. What we're going to look at, we're going to see that this is a denouncement of Israel's leaders. It's political leaders, it's religious leaders, but also the people. Because they too were honoring God with their lips while their hearts were far from Him. And I said... Hear you, heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and the flesh from off their bones, who eat their flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones into pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but He will not answer them. 
He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no, <clears throat> excuse me, there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, I, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become as a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the house a wooded height. The first message of judgment is directed to these cannibalizing leaders. You see, in Micah's day, God intended the government to be a theocracy. This was a government that had God as its head. Though they had established kings and leaders and judges, their ultimate ruler, their ultimate king was to be God. And all these leaders were to act as representatives on behalf of God. Though they were, politi- they were appointed to these political duties, their first and foremost responsibility was to be spiritual leaders to their people. And so you have um, passages like Deuteronomy 17, which gives instruction to the appointing of kings. And in it, God requires that the king of Israel write for himself a copy of the book of the law. And then he's to show it to the priests and they're to approve of it. There God instructs the people that this copy of the law shall be with the king always. And he shall read it in all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, so that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. See, good leaders were like Joshua, right? They would stand before the people as God's representative. And they would call, they would exhort the people to greater faithfulness in God. I mean, we remember Joshua's exhortation at the, in Joshua chapter 24, don't we? I mean, a lot of people post it up on their, in their houses, right? He says, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And as he made that charge, the people obeyed. They followed his lead. And it was actually the one, one of the most blessed times in all of Israel's history. 
And as you walk through biblical history, what you see is that whenever leaders were bold, whenever they were true, whenever they were faithful to serving God, for the most part, all those who were under their charge followed suit. Okay? When kings would do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, the people's relationship to God would prosper. It would, it would be restored. When judges would stand and judge with equity, there was peace among God's people. When elders set an example of caring for the poor, for the widow, for the fatherless, the people also showed the same compassion, and there was great prosperity in the land. And when family leaders were diligent to love their wives and to train their children in the ways that they should go, by and large, when the children grew old, they did not depart from it. See, God called leaders to have this unique privilege and responsibility to serve as shepherds, to guide, to care for, to protect the flock of God that he had placed under their charge. Their role was essentially to serve as God's representative in shepherding the people, not to seek their own power, not to seek their own gain. But like Uncle Ben said to Spidey, with great power comes great responsibility. You know, we are to use this gift to the glory of others. And so, here they were. They were given this charge. And Micah tells us that they were to know and pursue justice, to love kindness and goodness, and to walk humbly with their God. They were not to use their position to please themselves, to exalt themselves, to honor themselves, but rather they were to use it to glorify God and to seek the good of others. So what happens when leaders aren't the spiritual leaders that God intended? Well, Micah gives us a pretty grotesque description of what that looks like in verses 1 through 3. He says, Hear you heads of Jacob and you rulers of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love evil, who tear the skin from off my people and the flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron? Here he's saying, these leaders are no better than cannibals. And now he doesn't mean that they're actually doing this, that they're actually cutting people up and eating their flesh. But their focus upon themselves and seeking to exalt themselves and use their power, use their position of privilege to, to gain for themselves at the expense of others, to satiate or satisfy their destructive appetites, made them no better than cannibals. They had no concern for their fellow man. And they were exalting themselves and, and acquiring for themselves to the detriment of the men and women that they were meant to serve. <clears throat> we learned last week from chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, that they were using their positions to violently oppress and to steal land from other people, right? We heard that, that they would ambush the unsuspecting the unsuspecting and to steal the robes that they would they would steal the delightful homes away from widows and that they would take away the rich inheritance of God from the fatherless but rather than serving God 
Rather than seeking the good of others, they use their position for their own good, for their own glory. And we don't have to look hard to find other examples of this. I mean, this has happened since the beginning of history, since the fall, uh, since man fell into sin. I mean, think about Cain. Cain was the elder brother. He had familial and spiritual responsibility as the elder brother, but he killed his younger brother Abel. He denied that. We don't have to look too hard to find modern examples of people using their power to exalt themselves at the detriment of others. I mean, think about the Enron scandal. What happened there? You know, powerful corporate bigwigs walked away with millions, if not billions, while thousands went homeless or went jobless. We think about congressmen who were elected to represent the people. But when they get into the positions of power, they don't speak for their people, but rather they push their own agenda. And in the process, they line their own pockets. But it happens even more frequently on a day-to-day basis. It happens when men fail to be spiritual leaders in their home. Rather than loving their wives and seeking to prefer them, rather than shepherding the, the hearts of their children, they seek their own way. They seek their own advantage. And they neglect their God-given responsibility. Friends, when our pursuits are selfish and not centered on the glory of God and the good of others, the results are disastrous. We all play a part in this. I mean, we see throughout history that when people are, their motives are selfish, self-centered, they're seeking their own glory, that nations are divided, that people become individualistic and distrusting. Poverty and marginalization increases and morale is lowered. Crime increases. Violence escalates. Conflicts erupts. Children, are, are, families are broken and distant, and children turn away from their parents, and people harden their hearts against God. And all because political, spiritual, and family leaders fail to do what is good, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with their God. But instead, they seek their own selfish pursuits, desiring their own good, chasing their own glory. It's interesting, though, if you look at verses 9 and 10, it actually brings a twist to this. I want you to take a look at it. I want you to see what's happening with these leaders and their selfish plot. Micah says, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. But here's what I want to point out. Who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. According to verse 10, there are some leaders who are using their power to build Zion at the expense of others. To build Jerusalem through sinful means. But let me ask you, what is Zion? Biblically, what is Zion? It's the city of God. What is Jerusalem? Jerusalem means foundation or possession of peace. All right? It was intended to be a representation of God's dwelling place. It's where the temple existed. This was the city of God. People were to come here and to worship God through the temple. This was a place of significance. And here these people were using their power to build the city of God through blood, through sinful means. Isn't this amazing? You think about it. I mean, they, 
they seem to have a noble end in mind. I mean, they could be thinking to themselves, you know what? God has made us so prosperous as a nation that we just want to give back to God. We want to honor Him. And so what we're going to do is we're going to build up His city. We're going to make it great so that people will think of the renown of Jerusalem and that they will bask in the glory of God. That seems like a noble thing to do. But at what expense? Friends, the end doesn't justify the means. They were willing to sacrifice their fellow man to see it done. And so their zeal, however imperfect, for the house of God was corrupted. Though they outwardly appeared desirous to do something good for God, to build His city, the true intention of their hearts is shown in the way they went about it. Okay? Though in part they may have desired something good, the manner they went about it improved that their intentions were evil. And so Zion, the city of God that they sought to build, ended up becoming no better than Babel. People built Babel to separate themselves from God, to exalt themselves, to say, hey, we can reach deity. We can reach the level of deity without God. And here these people were seeking to build the house of Israel, to build God's city, but do it in a way that rejected God. It was no different. It was an abomination to him. And so, God said that he would take the land from them and that he would leave them no place in the assembly. And though they cried out to God for mercy, he would not answer them because their deeds were evil. Instead, God would level all that they had worked for. Zion, God's city, would be plowed as a field. And Jerusalem would become a heap of ruins. Now, we may be, we've talked about this, we've talked about leaders, and we say, you know what, there are no big wigs in the room. There are no major civic leaders here, no people of great significance, so this doesn't really apply to us. Well, I would say that's wrong. Because though we may not have any big civic leaders, we have people in this room that have positions of responsibility in their workplace. We have men who are meant to lead their homes as representatives of God. We have single people here who have the ability to influence others, to influence the peers around them. To one level or another, each of us have received some sort of influence over another. And we have to be responsible with that. And so I have to ask you, how are you doing on this? How are you really doing on this? How are you using your position of influence? Whose glory are you ultimately seeking? Are you seeking God's glory? Or are you seeking your own? Husbands, are you loving your wives? As Christ loved the church. Parents, are you truly shepherding your child's heart? Single people, what are you pursuing? What takes the bulk of your thought? What absorbs your mind? What are you seeking after? And to all of us, do we want something good, but are we going about it the wrong way? Are we striving to attain it through sinful means? 
Let me give you an example of this. I'll give it with parenting. It's fresh on my mind. My wife is walking out with my youngest child right now. Um, I have a desire, a godly desire, to see my, my children obey God, to fear the Lord, and to obey their parents. And this is a good desire, is it not? I mean, we should, we should want this, right? But, I can, treat, I can go about this in a sinful way, right? If I'm at my house, and I've got a lot of you, say you guys are over for, for our, at our house, and we're hanging out, and, and Gabe, our three-year-old, starts acting up. If I become embarrassed by that, and my desire, though, Impartial is good because I want to see him obey his parents. I want to see him fear the Lord is, is squandered because I'm angry with him because he's caused a disruption, because he's made me look bad in front of my friends, and I discipline him harshly. I've taken that good desire and I've, made, I've turned it into something wicked. It's no longer honoring to God, but it's an idol in my life. And we do that with a lot of good things. We do that with relationships. We do that, you know, in, in our desire to, to see God honored in certain situations, we can totally twist it and make it about ourselves. And when we do, it becomes an idol. And, friends, we, we have to be very aware of how this, is, this can happen. So when we use our God-given influence to pursue anything other than the glory of God and the good of others, we too are cannibals. We too are using our influence to, at the expense of others to, to gain from others' hurt. But leaders are not the only corrupt people that God lays charge against. Second, God shifts his attention to these compromising pastors. Okay, last week we looked at at chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, where the prophets were preaching half-truths to these people. They were telling them what they wanted to hear, okay? They were saying, hey, you know what? You people, you're the sons and daughters of Jacob. And God, God loves you. And God has, has made a covenant promise to your forefathers. And because God always keeps his promises, God is sure to continue this blessing. You're going to continue to be prosperous if only you continue to obey this formality of worship and give to him that he is going to bless you, that everything's going to be okay. And that sounds good. The problem is what he left out. See, with that covenant, there comes not only blessing, but curses. If you keep that covenant, if you continue to honor God and to walk faithfully with, with your heart fully devoted to God, yes, you will receive blessing. You will be seen as upright in God's eyes. But if you dishonor that covenant, if you fail to keep that covenant with all your heart, you would be cursed. And they were leaving that out. They were neglecting that. And so, you know, we talked about um, how the people were continuing to come to them. You know, they were, they were continuing to pursue this. They liked what they heard. And so the prophets were quick to tell these half-truths. They were quick to uh, tell people what they wanted to hear. 
We learn in, in chapter 3, verse 5 here, that these people were still coming to the prophets. They were seeking the will of God. These people weren't, weren't spurning the covenant outwardly. They were, they were still coming to the temple for worship. They were offering sacrifices. They were praying. They were reading scripture. They were doing all the, all the religious rites that they were supposed to perform. Right? They were still seeking the prophets. But the way that they did it was completely wrong. The prophets were supposed to tell them God's will, God's truth. I mean, that's what they were to do. When people came to the prophets, they were looking for a word from the Lord. And it was the prophet's responsibility to tell that word faithfully. But at that time, the prophets were often paid for their services. And so what what more than likely happened was it, it began... Simply enough, you know, the, a man goes to a prophet, he's looking for a word of the Lord, and, uh, and the prophet offers him a word, and it's a good one. The guy likes it. He's like, yeah, this is awesome. The God is blessing me. And so the man pays the money, but also throws in a little tip, a little extra, because he likes the outcome. And so the next time the man goes to this, he, has, he needs a word from the Lord, he goes to the prophet. But this time he's like, you know what, I bet. If I just pay him ahead of time and I show him that extra tip that I'm going to give him, maybe he'll ease the blow a little bit. Maybe he'll soften the word from the Lord. And so the prophet sees that. He's grateful for this, this overage that the man provides. And so he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to tell the truth, but I'm just going to, I'm going to ease it up a little bit. I'm going to ease it up. And this could continue to perpetuate. The man then, then begins... To tell his friends, he's like, hey, man, if you throw a little extra in, this prophet will go a little easy on you. He'll go a little easy on you. And then this, this cycle perpetuates until eventually it becomes an exchange. The prophets are tainted by their greed, and they begin to give people whatever they wanted to hear as long as they got paid well for it. And when they didn't, then they would curse the people. Those who couldn't afford to pay the prophet what he expected, they would receive a curse. We see that. In, in verse 5 there, it says, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. You know, instead of speaking God's message faithfully, they were using their God-given abilities for their own gain. They were, com- they were willing to compromise God's truth, God's will, so that they could get what they wanted. And so notice in in verses 6 and 7 that Micah, he seems to believe they have a legitimate God-given ability. But because they've abused it, because they sought their own way instead of God's, that ability would be taken away and they would be deposed of their positions. But the prophets were not the only profiteers. The priests, it says, were also receiving money for their teaching. Now, a priest's role was a little bit different than a prophet's, and I want to make sure we understand what they are. Priests, their job was to know the law. They were to be experts in the law, and then they would give instruction regarding that law. Okay? They would, they would tell the people, they, they regularly devoted themselves to teaching the law, but then if a situation would arise in which uh, discernment was needed, the people would bring forward a judge, but then the, the priest would come, and they would say, this is what the law requires. So a man stands in, in this court, in a sense, and the situation is explained, and the prophets would say, okay, this is where sin occurs, and not only is this where sin occurs, but this is what needs to be done to rectify the situation. 
So they had to know both the crime and the punishment, right? Um, and also, the priests were the ones who carried out that punishment. So if a man came forward and he was found to be in sin, the priests were the ones who said, yeah, that's clearly a sin. And what that sin requires is that you sacrifice a bull. So the man would go and he would procure a bull and he would bring it. And the priests would take that bull and they would sacrifice it on this man's behalf upon the altar. They interceded for the man. They, the, they mediated for the man. They offered that atonement for the man. And so these, these prophets kind of had this, this uh, weird combination of being a law expert slash pro bono lawyer slash spiritual counselor slash teacher slash bloody praying servant dude. That's kind of what he was, all right? But uh, <clears throat> so the people went to the prophets then when they wanted to hear God's will, when they wanted to know what God's will was, and they went to the priests to keep in line with Israel's religion. And then the judges were there to discern God, to discern and, and give declaration as to what was right. But uh, verse 11 says that they were all corrupt, that each of them were selling their best wares to the highest bidder. It says that Israel's heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is, it not, the, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Despite selling themselves out, they still clung to the security that God would be faithful to His promises. Even though they had compromised the truth, that they have sought their own gain, they still leaned on God. This led Bible commentator Leslie Allen to say, how tragic that they could see no inconsistency between selfishly exploiting their positions and sanctimoniously expressing faith in the protective presence of God. They saw no contradiction between what they were doing and what they professed to believe. It's pretty easy for us to stand here and, and condemn these prophets, these priests, these judges. We think to ourselves, these are experts in the law. They ought to know better. They know what God's will is. They know what the truth is. They know what God requires of them. And they know what happens to those who disobey. So how dare they do this? How dare they lighten or soften the truth for a bribe? I mean, how could they do this? But let me ask you this. What about you? What about you? I mean, you may not be an expert in the law. But you know enough of the truth. You know when your actions are right and wrong. You know. But how does knowing change the way you live? Friends, it's all too easy for us to compromise the truth, to seek our own gain. Especially when we can either lose something or gain something by it. And when... When ever are we put in a position where the truth needs to be heard and something is not potentially gain or lost in it? You think about that. You're, in a, you're interacting with somebody and you have an opportunity and God is like, this is the truth. And you begin to run through your mind. Okay, what is the, what's the pros and cons here? What's my possible gain and what could I possibly lose? We do that automatically, don't we? And that can sometimes dictate what we 
end up saying. And there's danger in that. We need to be careful. We need to speak the truth in love, but we need to speak the truth. You know, this is a particular responsibility for pastors, those modern-day prophet priests. I mean, when I look at our situation, I mean, gosh, we're a young church. We're just getting started. I mean, we're fresh out the blocks. We haven't even officially launched yet. Though we meet on Sunday mornings, this is our our organic start. And, And things are tough. Numbers are few. Dollars are even fewer. I mean, we, it's it's hard to get by. I mean, you know, I mean, I always chew my nails, but this gives me another reason to chew my nails, right? Because I'm I, I'm putting my faith, my family on the line. I mean, we moved up here. We didn't know what was going to happen. And I could say to myself, you know what? For the good of the ministry, for the good of God, I'm going to go out and I'm going to find some rich people. I'm going to find some doctors. I'm going to find some lawyers. I'm going to find some business professionals. And I'm going to get in good with them. Because if they start giving to this ministry, imagine what God could do through it. Imagine all the money that we could have. And so I go to these guys, and I start talking to them, and I start buttering them up. You know, trying to get them involved, trying to get them involved. And then they start asking me questions. Well, what about this? And I, and I could say to myself, okay, this could make it or break it. That's really not a big deal. That's really, you know, I mean, yeah, that's kind of the way we are, but it's really not a big deal. And we try to smooth it. We try to ease it. We try to coax them in to becoming a part of it. And we think we're doing it for the right reasons. But we're compromising on the mission. We're compromising on the truth. I mean, these could be significant doctrinal issues. And so when this man comes and he sits here in the congregation and I'm preaching, I come up to this truth, doctrine of sin, and I'm where I would be like this, maybe I'm like this. You know, I'm, I'm easing up a little bit. You know, I, I, I've compromised the truth for the sake of gain. But what have we lost? <clears throat> so when you think about it that way, you know, it, it really comes down to each of us has to ask this question. What, what are we going to live for? Who are we going to live for? Is it going to be for ourselves? Is it going to be for others? Or is it going to be for God? There's really, there's no exception. We've got to make that decision. <clears throat> um, you know, we're, we're going to please somebody. And often t- it, we need to decide who we're going to please as a priority, right? That's got to be the essential thing. Is it, it's got to be pleasing God first. We'll find that when we please God, when it is our delight, when we delight ourselves in the Lord, He will give us the desires of our hearts because our wills are like His. So it's not as though we won't be satisfied if we're truly seeking after God. And in the process, others will be pleased by our telling the truth. Maybe not initially. Maybe we'll make some enemies. But we need to seek God first. I was going to read this uh, Charles Bridges quote from the Christian ministry, but I'm going to skip over it now. But I recommend that book highly for anybody that's thinking in terms of what does it mean to follow God faithfully. I mean, he really nails it. Um, but we, each of us has this responsibility. This is, though it's first and primarily for pastors, it, it belongs to, to each of us. Friends, we have all been, um, all believers, all saints, are part of what is called the royal priesthood, the priesthood of believers. 
We are to stand and intercede for one another. We are to proclaim God's truth to one another so that the church might be built up. We are to to act as priests, act as shepherds, act as those who mediate for one another. We are to be those who go on mission through service, through proclamation, through witness, to see others come to know Christ. And this is, this is all our responsibility. And we're all given those, those opportunities to either hold to the truth, to speak the truth in love, or to compromise it. And so I, w- I just want to challenge you guys to think deeply about what you are going to do in that situation. If you're not resolved now, you won't be resolved in that situation when it comes time. But not only does this corruption exist among cannibalizing leaders and compromising pastors, we also see corruption third in the complacency of the people. Now, I'm not going to labor over this one too much because, again, we talked about it last week. We're going to look at it more in depth in chapter 6 in a few weeks when we look at that. But it's not only the political and the spiritual leaders who are to blame. The people, too, were corrupt. It was the people, remember, who were paying the prophets, who were paying the priests to be told what they wanted to hear. They, they paid well to have their itching ears scratched, to find faithless pastors who would suit their passions, who would tell them of, of the prosperity that God would give them regardless of how they lived and what they did. But not only do they show complacency in, in paying these prophets for a false message, for half-truths, and they paid dearly for it, they also showed their complacency in their lack of concern for their fellow man. Here, people were violently being oppressed. Their land was being stolen. Zion was being built with blood. So you can only assume that people were dying in the process, and they didn't care. So long as they got what they wanted, they turned a blind eye to what was happening in the world around them. And that was not okay. That was not pleasing to God. Rather than committing themselves to pursuing truth and justice... Their selfishness led them to become apathetic. It led them to become cold towards the violence and the oppression that was happening all around them. According to Deuteronomy 13, it was actually the responsibility of the people when they identified false prophets, those who were leading people away from God, to to deal with them. They were to put them to death. They were to stone them. It was the responsibility of the people when they saw corrupt leaders to reprimand them, and to depose them of their positions. These were the responsibilities of the people, but they weren't acting on it because they didn't care. So long as they got what they wanted, it didn't matter what happened to their neighbors. There was no love for their fellow man. And so because of their complacency, because of their carelessness and their coldness, because the people did not do what is good, They did not do justice. They did not love kindness. They did not walk humbly with their God. They too would be judged by God. All the while, they're feigning worship to God. All the while, they're continuing to go to church. They're continuing to pray, to read scripture, to offer up their songs of praise. Hungry I come to you, for I know you satisfy. But when it came right down to it, they didn't care. 
They didn't have the heart of God. And so they would go into exile. And they too would see all that they labored for destroyed. Friends, there's a real danger to complacency. A real danger. We cannot say that we love God and not love our neighbor. The reciprocal is also true. We can't truly love our neighbor without truly loving God. So when Christ presents these two greatest commandments, they are inseparably bound. You can't have one without the other. God's love is so overwhelming that if we love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, we will indeed love our neighbors as ourselves. It will happen. So regardless, if we say we believe and we practice religion outwardly, but we're content not to lift a finger in love by helping alleviate the needs of our fellow man, by working to free them from their oppression, our religion is worthless. That's what James says, chapter 1, verse 27. The Apostle John says it like this in 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. I mean, John is clear here. The love that we have for God and the love that we have for our fellow man is inseparable. It is inseparable. And though outsiders, when they look upon us, though they can't see God, when they see us loving one another, they're able to see the love of God. God's love is perfected because it's made manifest. It's made clear. This is an amazing privilege that we have. What an honor. Friends, those who have truly received the love of God, they will not be complacent will not seek their own gain without concern for others. Those who truly know they have God's love will indeed love others. So this is the corruption that we see in Micah's day. Those who seek gain at the expense of others. Those who are willing to compromise the truth. And those who are content to ignore lies and injustices so long as they get what they want. But fortunately for us, that's not the end of the story. Fourth, Micah contrasts himself with these corrupt leaders. And in the process, he gives us a hint at the cure. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 8. Micah actually says this of himself. He says, but as for me, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. There is one thing that distinguishes Micah from his false preaching peers. One thing that sets him apart from the wicked that are around him. 
There is one thing that fills him with power, that compels him to speak on God's behalf. There's one thing that strengthens his resolve to fight for justice. One thing that gives him courage, the might, and the valor to stand for truth in order to call people of Israel to repent of their sin and to follow God. And that one thing is the Spirit of the Lord. The only reason Mike isn't like everyone else is because he's received the Spirit of God. In this one little verse, Micah, he teaches us a lot about what the Spirit does in the lives of believers. The Spirit gives believers an understanding of what is true and what is right, and then gives them the power to walk in that truth. The Spirit gives the believers a concern for justice and a love for others, so that they can courageously labor in order to see God glorified and good done to others. The Spirit of God brings an awareness of transgression and sin so that we can not only identify it, but that we can turn from it and follow God. And the Spirit not only gives us a knowledge of the truth, but He gives us the power to be changed by it. So if we're going to truly follow God, we need God's Spirit. But Scripture is clear. There's only one way to receive the Holy Spirit. That's to repent of our sin and to believe in Jesus Christ. Romans 8, verses 9 through 14 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life. Because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are Sons of God. Friends, we all have sinned. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. We all have lived according to the flesh. We all have rebelled against God in thought, in word, and in our action. We have irrevocably separated ourselves from a just and holy God. We have made ourselves subject to God's righteous wrath. And the only hope we have of reconciliation, the only hope we have of being restored to God, is by recognizing our sin and repenting of it. By believing that Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for our sin. That He gave His blood as a ransom to pay the penalty of our sin against God. He offers that freedom. He offers that reconciliation. He offers new life in Him. And it's not as though it just ended with our, our, our slates have been wiped clean and now we've got to live on our own. He's given us His Spirit. 
we have the promise of the newness of life. And this is not like we start over again, but this is a present power that works in us so that we might be transformed, so that we might change, so that we might be filled with power and justice and might to declare transgression and sin. And so that we might be conformed into the image of Christ. We have this ability now to walk in faithful obedience. We have this ability now to be transformed. And it comes through the Spirit. We can't have the Spirit without Christ. And so I pray that you would respond. I pray that you would not remain in your sin. That you would not remain under God's just wrath. But you would come to Christ. The one who gave his life to save your soul and receive the Spirit of the Lord and be transformed by it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we thank you that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. We thank you that in your mercy that you have made a way for us to be reconciled to you. God, I pray that that we will see your greatness, that we will see your glory, that we will understand your holiness and your absolute perfection. And that when we look upon ourselves, we would see ourselves rightly, that we have rebelled against you, that we have turned our backs on you, that we try to live as this is our world and we are God. And God, may we repent of it. May we seek to follow Christ. May we see His sacrifice as our greatest and most ultimate need. And may we run to Him. May we truly hunger for Him and find our soul satisfaction in Him. And God, I pray that we would truly receive the Spirit and that we would live, that we would walk in it. God, we know that in Christ alone, our hope is found. And so, Lord, we pray that as we respond to this message through song, through prayer, that we would truly give our hearts to you. That we would truly hunger after you because we know you satisfy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.